I would say if you're ready, we can go ahead and get started unless you got any questions. Yep, I'm ready. Ready to go. Well, the first thing I would say is uh, go ahead and tell us about you and what you do. Well, uh, my name is Glenn Grano. Uh, I was a police officer up here in the Rochester, New York area, which is upstate New York, about five hours outside of New York City. And I was a police officer up here for 22 years. Uh, 11 of those years, my last 11, were all in narcotics. Uh, and I would say probably my last six of those were um, straight wiretap. I was a wiretap case agent, affiant, um, and I worked um, primarily uh, motorcycle and uh, organized crime uh, in terms of narcotics investigation. After I retired, I took two jobs overseas. One was with the Department of State, and I spent a year and a half in Afghanistan as a police trainer. I was embedded with our military, and we would go about different parts of Afghanistan and train the uh, local national police. And then when I returned home, I took another contract with the Department of Defense and went to Iraq, and I worked six months there in Baghdad and then in Basra, again embedded with our military. That was more of a rule of law program where we were doing criminal investigations um, on insurgents that had been uh, rounded up during the course of uh, the conflicts. Uh, now, currently, I'm an assistant professor of intelligence studies and director of the Homeland Security and Applied Intelligence Program at Roberts Wesleyan College. Right now, that's what I'm doing, <laughs> and I love it. I mean, everything I've done in my professional life has transitioned seamlessly into uh, teaching the next generation. And how did you get into this uh, crime analysis gig, uh, as, I guess, aside from the fact that you're already a police officer, right? Well, back in my day, I, did, I, I let's see, when I went to the academy in 1983. Uh, back in that time, pre-social media, the before the internet, before cell phones, uh, everything we did was old school. But because we were doing it, we had nothing to compare it to. Um, we've just thought back then it was the way to do it. So intelligence gathering was really uh, a tedious process. But if I comp was to compare it today, um, it really was a process that um, forced the investigator to take deep dives into reading paperwork, reports, um, making communications because you didn't have the access to the Internet uh, and cell phones. You had to actually drive to different police departments. So you made a lot of face-to-face uh, -face, uh, contacts. So in terms of my narcotic, narcotic stage, intelligence was all me. I did all the intelligence on my uh, criminal organizations. When I came back from Iraq, I was offered a position as an intelligence analyst at a fusion center uh, up here in my area. And it's, it's a fusion center that's modeled after the New York City Police Department's real-time crime center which cost them about $23 million or so. What New York State decided to do was take that concept and spread fusion centers out throughout the entire state after that model. So each fusion center is about a million dollars worth of equipment, video boards, software, GIS, IBM IT, things like that. But the problem they were having is that law enforcement was not embracing the civilians that they were hiring to work as intelligence and crime analysts in these fusion centers. So the director, when I returned from Iraq, was someone, he was a retired police officer, someone I had worked with. He said he wanted me to come on board to bring the police perspective, the investigative perspective, 
work with the young analysts, and then try to get the cops in the field, especially the ones that I still knew, to embrace crime analysis. So I went over there initially trying to build bridges. But what really happened is I learned how to be a crime analyst and an intelligence analyst as you see how they are today. I embraced the software. I embraced the methodology. I embraced the ideology. And what I brought to the table was the concept of cross-training and, co and uh, collaboration. So when I started there in 2012, the police uh, departments, the 11 police agencies in the area of the fusion center, I would say the percentage of usage was maybe in the 25, 30% range. When I left in 2016 to go teach full-time, uh, it was a fully operating 24-7 real-time fusion center with analysts embedded in homicide, narcotics, on hostage teams. So we really grew the fusion center uh, during that time I was there. And from that point on, everything I've done now professionally has been around uh, the concepts of crime and intelligence analysis. I also noticed that you used the crime and intelligence sometimes. Do you see a difference between a crime analyst and an intelligence analyst? There's a difference in methodology uh, in terms of the cases, the perspectives they bring to the cases. Uh, traditionally, uh, crime analysis is you're identifying crime patterns, you're working crimes uh, that are being brought to the center from the police department, such as robberies, burglaries. Um, you're trying to find uh, um, link, you're using link analysis to link suspects to uh, to crimes, whether it's um, through like profiling, if you have serial type crimes, you're working a lot with uh, MOs and trying to match MOs. Intelligence analysis, what we found up here and what the center actually morphed into, it started as a crime center, crime uh, analytical center. It morphed into an intelligence center because instead of agencies calling and saying, can you look over this block of reports? Can you give us um, statistical analysis on, you know, patterns that, uh, or, or like CompStat, the original CompStat, I want to look at what crime was like in our district or in our precinct. From the intelligence side, all of a sudden investigators started calling and saying to my analysts, can you work with me on this case? I need to identify this group, this organization, or this suspect. So instead of taking a holistic view at crime in terms of patterns and statistical analysis, intelligence takes a deep dive into the component of the crime. So, for instance, we work very closely with JTTF, the Joint Terrorism Task Forces up here, um, and they would send us a lot of, I guess, workups on people that were on the peripheral of uh, um, their terrorist organization, uh, their terrorist investigations. So my people that I would assign to work with them would deep dive into the intelligence aspect of those organizations that they would identify, as opposed to a police department will call us and say, we need to know our statistics for the last month, burglary, robberies, homicides, and we need patterns for our comp stat. That's the two difference. The methodology is kind of the same. You're following the same processes of, of analysis. It's just the direction you're taking your final products and your results go in two different directions. Gotcha. And that you've seen that it's the same set of skills? I believe it's the, it's, it's the same skill set. So 
the way I like to equate it is and uh, how I try to teach my kids is when a police officer goes to the academy, they learn the basic fundamentals of policing. So every cop on the job, from the rookie street cop to the seasoned homicide investigator, all know how to police, the concepts of policing. But then time and position, um, and you start to work specific aspects of policing, whether it is homicide or narcotics. And once ha that happens, you are now starting to learn the specific skill set for that role. And that's how I look at crime uh, analysis and intelligence analysis is the concepts of analysis, whether it's the analysis process, or I'm sorry, the crime analysis process, when you compare it to the intelligence process, you're looking at basically five or six of the same steps that ultimately conclude with dissemination and feedback. But the differences are the skill sets. I mean, where, who are you doing your analytical work for? Again, like police work, everyone understands policing and analysis, crime and intelligence, everyone understands the methodology behind it, the foundation, but it changes depending on your role. If you're assigned to a gang unit, you're specifically uh, gathering intelligence on gang activity. But if you're assigned to administrative, where you're doing a comp stat process, you're doing more crime analysis. Uh, but you're, you're basically working and utilizing very similar skills. I think, honestly, that one of the hardest things we had to learn how to transition at our few our fusion center was the mindsets. So you had the mindset of the civilian analysts that were, that were loosely trained. Now it's, the training is much more advanced. Now there's degree programs for it. But when I was there in 2012, um, the training was either in-house or they would send you to conferences like IACA. Um, but the training for, a, for an analyst, crime and or intelligence, was completely different, as you know, Oscar, for the training for a police officer. So what you have is crime is crime. So the people who address the crime problem, they look at it from different perspectives because they have different jobs to do. So the transition we had to create was a, teaching our analysts how to think like cops in terms of investigative, uh, the investigative process and teaching our cops how to understand what the analysts were capable of in terms of data mining, the, date, uh, the databases they could access, the products they could create. That was the toughest part. So when a cop comes into a crime analysis center, he already understands the concept of policing better than any civilian analyst ever will because he, that, that's his world. He was trained in that world. I think that if he can embrace the software, the technology, and uh, the understanding that it's an intensive process in terms of research, um, not as run and gun as it was when you're on the street, uh, they'll have an easier time with it. They'll actually enhance their skill set. And on the flip side, you'll see the civilian analysts, once they embrace how cops think, how cops work, the process of an investigation, you start to see them all of a sudden, it's like their eyes open up and say, I want to be that someday. So they may go into crime and intelligence analysis only as, a, you know, saying I'm just going to be an analyst my whole life. But if they're smart to open their eyes to the world of law enforcement because they're going to be working collaboratively, they may find, some of them find, that that's the world they eventually want to go into. So I think it's a great union. I don't think it's a difficult transition for law enforcement to go into the units. 
as long as they embrace the technology and they understand the value of putting together those products, I think it just enhances your skill set. In terms of building credibility with officers, which way do you think is the best way for a crime analyst to go about doing that? I think the best way, there's two, and I'm going to use it on the two models that we built um, in my fusion center. One is collaboration, cross-training. You, you have to bring them in, whether it's through in-service training or through uh, bringing them to the center, however you devise it, put them in a room together and train them together. So each, each can understand that the crime is the crime, here's homicide, and from an investigative perspective, it's answering the who, what, where, when, why, how. But from the analytical perspective, it's also answering the who, what, when, where, why, how, only in different methodologies. And I think what happens is they start to see how they can work well off each other. So you see the resistance start to disappear, you know, or the reluctance to work collaboratively. You start to see uh, them embracing the fact that a collaborative partnership is working. So training is one. The second thing that we did that was very successful is embedding. We embedded analysts directly into units. So the first unit that accepted one of our analysts as a full-time member was homicide, which was huge. So our homicide unit in, in the city of Rochester uh, per capita has more homicide, the most homicides per capita per population in the entire state of New York. So it's a very violent city. Homicide decided to take one of our analysts, embed her into their unit. She went out on all homicide calls. If there was a shooting at 2 in the morning, they picked her up. She went to the scene. She walked the scene before the tape was up, while the body was still there. She started analyzing right then and there. And they found that that clock, that 48-hour clock, that used to tick slowly because back then they had to go to the office and research their leads and then go back out and follow up on their leads. They had the analysts right at their side. They didn't have to go in. They didn't have to leave the streets. She was following up on the leads uh, and feeding them to them in real time. So the best ways to do that are if you can embed an analyst, that shows the worth and the value, and if you can do cross-training. And then I think what you'll see is this reluctance. These walls start to disappear, and you'll start to see greater success. Something you mentioned earlier, too, is a fusion center. Can you explain a little more in depth what that is? Well, the fusion centers, or they, they, they go under different names. It's either fusion. Uh, up here we have uh, uh, CAC centers, uh, crime analysis, CAC centers. So they can either be called CACs, crime analysis centers, fusion centers, real-time crime centers. The idea behind the center concept is to put a group of like-minded people in a center with all your software, with all your technology, with your real-time boards, with the police radios going, working 24-7, and then working on analytical, the analytical process, be it both crime and intelligence, and then announcing to your law enforcement partners, we are here 24-7 for you, no matter what you're looking for. You're looking for identity on a license plate, you want mapping, you want link analysis, whatever you want, we're a one-stop shop. And then inside those fusion centers, sometimes law enforcement will assign an, uh, a detective or an investigator. So there'll be a representative from here. So in my fusion center, there are four representatives that are sworn members, and that's, they work specifically in the fusion center, along with the 20 uh, civilian analysts. 
the concept of the fusion center is to, because software is so expensive and most police departments cannot afford our GIS, which is the mapping software, or IBM I2, the link analysis um, software, the analytical software that does that, and, and all the other softwares. Um, because most law enforcement agencies can't afford that, what happens is the fusion centers buy the software, and then the law enforcement can just call them and say, can you make me a map? Can you do this? Can you do that? And the fusion centers, based on, because they have the ownership and they have the licenses, can do that. So it also helps law enforcement in that respect uh, in terms of purchasing things. They don't have to procure all of that software. The fusion center has it. But the best thing about fusion centers, in terms of my opinion, is they're not tethered to one police department. At least ours is not. So our fusion center is run by what's called the Department of Criminal Justice Services in the state of New York. They're a certifying body uh, throughout the entire state. They certify police officers. They do all the certified accredited training. That's who the analysts work for. And the importance of having them separate and independent is that they, not, they can't be claimed by a department. So if one department, say the city police says, you work for me, and then the county sheriff says, I need this done, you work for me, the answer is no, we work with you. And that takes a lot of stress off the analyst on, in terms of um, who do we answer to. You answer to the guidelines of the center, and once law enforcement gets that, the appreciation level of why they're there is great. But, the, but in concept and theory, that's what a fusion center does. It's a one-stop shop utilizing all sorts of software and providing intelligence and crime analysis to all of the police agencies that they're tethered to. How did that compare with your time in the military? With Well, I was first introduced to ArcGIS and... Uh, link analysis when I was over in Iraq. So I was in Iraq and I was embedded in a, um, in a, in a unit. Um, and the, my unit was called, they were called a counter IED unit. And I was working with the, the uh, as a civilian investigator, I was working with a JAG, two JAG officers because we were doing um, the criminal investigation aspect of it. And then the counter IED guys were doing multiple other types of investigations. So there was a civilian intelligence aspect assigned to us. And they were not military. They were civilians like I was. They were contractors. But they were doing lower-end um, type of work. They were doing mapping using GIS, maybe mapping insurgents, maybe mapping where you know IEDs were going off, whatever. They were also doing link analysis. So when I got to know them, the first thing I said was, boy, I wish I had this when I was in narcotics. And then I started to understand the value of having civilians working in an intel field. Now, they couldn't go into the SCIFs, so they didn't have the clearances um, to see all, everything that was coming in from the fields. But that wasn't what their role was. Their role was to develop products, mapping products, bulletins, things that could go out to the patrols, you know, out to the commands, out to the field. And it was really basically tying the intel in with products out. And once I saw that, um, I understood that collaborative process. And when I came back and they walked me through the fusion center, the first thing I thought of was like, this is kind of similar to what I saw over in Iraq in terms of how the civilian intel guys were working with the military. So another thing that comes to mind in terms of products and what you're producing 
or the officer sometimes could become a little overwhelming and maybe at some point they're just hit the delete button without even opening that email. How, how do we keep that fresh? Absolutely. So what I teach my kids, um, as you know, because I, you're, you and I, we have very similar backgrounds when it comes to what we did with narcotics. And as you know, um, especially if you're working these higher level cases, it's massive amounts of information and intel to disseminate. And how do you cut through uh, the fact and the fiction? How do you take info, make it intel, and then eventually actionable to write a search warrant to do a wiretap? So what I tell my students and what I used to tell my analysts when I was their supervisor is you're going to be the repository. You're the person that's going to know everything. Think of yourselves as the brain. Everything you data mine. And we had so many, uh, we had a data warehouse, and the data warehouse was tethered. Uh, uh, as long as agencies signed MOUs, we were able to access their data. So we were able to access all the police uh, reports from every agency. We had the county government data in terms of pistol permits and this. We had Veritrax coming in. We had five undercover social media accounts. So I told my analyst, I said, you're going to be the brain of these investigations in terms of your information input. I says, but you have to be aware of one thing. You cannot send everything you see out to the field. Because if you do, they're going to hit the delete button, just like you said, Oscar. They're going to hit the delete because cops don't have the time to read four, five, six pages of an, of an intelligence brief. They want a one-page one document, whether it's a bulletin, a bolo, um, a pattern crime. And how you form that product is important, how you title it, if it's officer safety, you know, you have to highlight it, but only in certain areas. So visually, the product has to be in a manner where the reader understands it's important. If it's a mess visually, it, they're going to delete it. They're going to be like, what is this mess? If it's a mess verbally, if the picture's on it, suspect pictures or, say, vehicle pictures are formatted, all kind of uh, pixelated or out of shape, they're going to delete it. So I would tell them, you know everything, and this is where the concept of understanding what the cops do. If they can understand what it's like to be in that patrol car, and if they can understand what they want to see, I used to tell them, think about, if you're the end user, I always would tell them the end user is the field officer or the investigator. If you're the end user, what would you want to look at and how much would you take before you said this is too much? And once they understood that, most of our products were one page, uh, they were formatted in a way that um, they would highlight certain areas that would catch the eye, they would use uh, keywords such as BOLO or officer safety. And we took a lot of criticism in the beginning, but we used that criticism to refine the process. But if you do not work with your analysts, um, they are going to do nothing but a massive data dump because they don't understand uh, the workings on the street. That's that collaborative effort. That's where you got to put them in a room so the investigators can say, look, I appreciate what you're doing, but you, you can't send me six pages. I don't have the time to read six pages. And then the analysts will understand that, and that's how we, we refined that process. But it does take a collaborative effort um, to make sure that they're not doing mass data dumps to the cars in the field. Let's walk through that a little bit. You obviously would need a name, right? Last name, a picture if you have one, right? What else do you think should be in one of these uh well, the bulletins, um, we created a standardized template. So first and foremost, it should all, they should all be uniform. So each analyst shouldn't just be able to freelance their, their products. It should, every product should look the same. So we had 
19 analysts. I had nine under me on the real-time side um, because we also worked off police radios and crimes in progress. So everybody formatted bulletins the same way. And in terms of the product itself, if it's a bulletin where you're, say, this person is wanted, um, it had to be photo, uh, demographics, such as, you know, name, address, height, weight. And then we would make sure we, if there was relevant intelligence, so if a person was wanted for robbery, and let's say his police record was, he had a whole page rap sheet, but most of it was DWIs, and maybe there were only two, you know, violent type crimes, we would only put the two violent type crimes on the bulletin because the bulletin is robbery, which is a violent crime. We would want the officer to know that the person had a propensity towards violence. To put six DWI arrests on a robbery bulletin really didn't do anything for the officer. They want to know what's this person's history in terms of this crime. So if it's a burglar and they have you know, six or seven um, unauthorized you know, uh, driving without a licenses, we wouldn't even put that on the bulletin because it's irrelevant to the fact that he was a burglar. So formatting was very important in terms of what you chose. If there were field interview reports or intelligence reports that officers would write and a couple of them came back, such as that had gang affiliation, we would put that on the bulletin under police context, which is, not, which is different than criminal record. So the bulletin should read like a profile. So if I'm wanted for... Um, if there's a warrant for me for robbery, I'm wanted for robbery, I want you, the officer, to know who I am, what I look like. If, if I have gang affiliation, put it on there. If I have propensity to violence, that definitely has to go on there because they're going to find me and you want to know if I'm going to fight you or not. And uh, the photographs, you try to find the most updated photograph, whether it's a driver's license photo through DMV. Um, if it's a Facebook photo, you have to be careful because you have to vet it. You have to confirm that's the person. Um, so in terms of what you put on a product, it's really an art form in terms of getting that product to be uh, usable in the field. But once you can establish a format for products, um, then you'll see that the products are used in a lot of things, tactical and strategic. And the same holds true for pattern bulletins. You want to show the time, you know, the time, the temporal, the special, you know, the commonalities. So say 7-Elevens are getting hit at uh, between 11 and 3 in the morning. You want your night patrols to know. A, 7-Elevens are getting hit. So if you have 7-Eleven in your jurisdiction, you want to watch them. This is the method of the robbery. Um, this is, you know, this appears to be the MO, the modus operandi of the suspect. And you want that, and then you want to put, uh, you know, you want to map. Take out GIS, map all the, the patterns, cut and paste it right on your bulletin. So now your officers have a one-page document that really highlights to them what is occurring at locations that they have in their jurisdiction. So in terms of products, it's something that you really have to work hard with your analysts on in order to make sure that the formatting suits the desire and need of the uh, patrols. So as you were working on the, on the real time, do you send then that information straight to that officer or do you disseminate the information agency-wide? Well, the real time concept was in its infancy when we started it. And um, we took a lot of it from the NYPD version. Uh, obviously, they're just a massive agency and they have um, an abundance of resources. We sat down and basically said, all right, you guys, I had to, we had to train them on their radio ear. That's the hardest thing. Uh, you and I both know, Oscar, that 
you know, once you develop the radio ear, you can listen to six conversations as it wants and still hear your police radio. But the civilians, they, they don't have that. So that was one thing we had to train them on because these fusion centers are, are they're noisy, they're collaborative, people are talking. Once they develop that, if a crime in progress, like a shooting, we had a lot of shootings in the city, a lot of shootings. So if a shooting would come in, a violent crime would come in, they would immediately pull up all the cameras. There's, 100 and, there's almost 200 cameras in the city. Pull the cameras up, pull up the shot spotter, um, which records the shooting and geographically can pinpoint pretty close where the, the gun was fired, if you're familiar with the shot, shot spotter um, software. And then they would data mine off the dispatch card because we would have uh, their computer terminals. They had four terminals each, and one of their terminals was linked to uh, OEC, the 9-11 center. So as soon as that job was dispatched, they would pull up the job card, and they would see who the caller was, the caller's phone number, the address, and all that. They would start data mining. So if, an, if I'm driving to a scene at 123 Street for shots fired, in my time, I was driving into the unknown. Just, just like you, Oscar, we, would, we wouldn't know where we're going. We're going to 123 Street for shots fired, and we'll make a determination what happened once we get there. In real-time crime analysis, we would then, my analysts would then be able to go through OEC. They would never call the car directly, although they would have a radio. In some situations, they would directly call the officer if it was priority, but for the most part, everything was done through OEC, and they would call OEC and say, hey, car 12 is going through shots fired at 123 Street. Make him aware that 123 Street is the headquarters of Gang A. Uh, Gang A is currently in a dispute with Gang B, and this may be relevant. So now all of a sudden you're driving to a call and you're getting fed intel that you're going to a gang headquarters who's in a current dispute with another gang. That, the cops love that because it kind of helped them paint a better picture. Officer safety-wise, it was huge. So um, that's how we would work in the real-time concept, and that's the process they use to get the info in the field. Um, it would always be through, through the 9-11 center to the officer, but in certain circumstances, if it was priority or life-threatening, they could pick the radio up and they could talk directly to the officer from our fusion center. Um, but again, we had to train them in all of that, radio usage, the radio ear, how to talk. But once they learned it, it was invaluable. And it's really a balance. Um, if you work for a smaller agency and you have an in-house, see up here, no police agency has an intel unit embedded in them. They all rely on the fusion center. So we have the city police and then the county sheriff, which are the two largest. And then we have 11 town police departments. None of them have crime or intelligence analysts employed as employees of the agencies. They all use the fusion center. Uh, New York State Police, which is the state patrol, which is, I'm pretty, you have the, the highway patrol down there, Florida Highway Patrol. Right. Okay. Our New York State Police is a combination of what your FDLE and your Florida Highway Patrol would be. They're, they do both jobs, but they're called the New York State Police. They have their own intelligence center. Um, and they don't utilize the fusion centers because they have their own center. They'll work with us, but it, they do their own thing. Um, so for an agency like yours, yeah, it would. everybody knows everybody. So you wouldn't bother to get on the radio unless it was priority, or you wouldn't even have your analysts get on the radio. But up here, um, the analysts were listening to everybody's calls, the city, the sheriff, the towns. Um, so they were data mining for everybody. Uh, and I had nine of them under me, and they worked uh, three shifts, 24 hours. 
uh, obviously the night shifts were the busiest, especially in the city, because that's the majority of the shootings. In my mind, it sounds like a very complicated uh, system you got going on over there. You know, it's complicated to, in respect to it's got a lot of moving parts. But the, they were smart about it when they created it because they went down to NYPD and they walked through. It's called the NYPD Real-Time Crime Center. So if anyone was to Google it, just Google NYPD Real-Time Crime Center and you'll see what I'm talking about. Now, you have to understand, NYPD is tethered to the federal agencies. They have a lot of federal grant money, so they're, they're fusion centers on steroids. But New York State realized the value. They walked through it. They asked the right questions. They purchased the right software. And then they took a look at the cities, Buffalo, which is a violent city in the state of New York, Rochester, my city, violent, Syracuse, violent, a lot of violent cities in the, sprinkled throughout the state. Um, and that's where they put fusion centers. They put them in all the major cities. So there's like, I think there's 14 now. But they made sure that the model was the exact same in each center. And the model mirrored how NYPD did it. So if someone is going to look into this concept, I would suggest to them, do what New York State Department of Criminal Justice Services did. Go to the agency that, has had the success go to somewhere like nypd's lap um i think lapd also has one there's a lot of them in california go to those look at their blueprint talk to them about what worked what didn't and then create your center to mirror that in terms of how you want it to run then what you're going to find is even though it's got a lot of moving parts if you put the right people in place get the right training going by the right software it's not as difficult as you would think let me ask you about um, something else here. Um, you've been doing this a long time. What is the one thing you wish you knew when you began your career? I think the one thing I wish uh, I knew when I began the career is um, I wish I had a better skill set uh, with technology. I was older. Um, now, the Generation Z generation, those born after 1990. Uh, those are the younger cops that we see today. Um, they were born with technology uh, basically tethered to their hands. They grew up with the phones and the computers. So they're, they're not frightened by it. But if you bring someone that has any type of um, uh, complications with, with using tech in a, uh, uh, a multifaceted aspect, you have to multitask on multiple tech, that was the one thing I wish I, I had known. I grew into it. I did not become the best. But then again, I did, and I became a supervisor, so my analyst did. But I still had to learn it. Um, and I think if I had to pick anything, I wish I was more proficient on being able to utilize tech to, to the software's full advantage. I understood computers, and I wasn't afraid of them, but I wasn't as comfortable with the tech as the kids who were born into tech were. So I guess that would be the one thing I wish uh, – um, I was better at when I first came in. I think for me, uh, the people who influenced me the most when I came in were, um, I would say there were, there were two groups. The first group um, were the, the three people I worked with in Iraq because they introduced me to um, the concept of crime intelligence analysis being embedded 
in a bigger picture or being embedded like in the military. That really opened my eyes up to seeing the value of it. So when I came back, I always went back to that and said, yeah, these guys, they, they did so much good work with their products to save the lives of these soldiers, to identify the bad guys, to identify the insurgents. I can definitely apply that here. So that was one. And then the second group, and actually um, in the book that I wrote, um, I actually uh, acknowledged the two analysts in my acknowledgments in the book. And it were two analysts specifically that worked, we worked together when I first started there. And then when I became a supervisor, I became their bosses. One was embedded with the homicide squad and the other one was known as the county analyst. She was embedded with the, with the sheriff's department. And I really learned a lot from them. I learned the, technici- uh, the, the technical aspect of, you know, data mining, how to store. They taught me, you know, they would sit with me on IBM I2 and RTIS and show me the best way to utilize it. And I was not a dinosaur. I, I, I didn't sit there with an attitude or anything. I was so open-minded, and I, was, I learned from them. You know, the age had nothing to do with it. It's these kids had skills. Um, so I attributed them to uh, really teaching me a lot about um, some of the finer points of how to use tech uh, to the best of its ability. So those are the two groups that I really uh, kind of built you know, my skill sets on watching them and seeing how successful they are, those two groups were. It goes back to what you were saying earlier about collaborating, teaching what you know and they teach you what they know. Absolutely. You can never stop learning. I'm learning that now as a professor. I mean, my, my students uh, who are in an intelligence degree program, uh, they're going to be the future of crime and intelligence analysis. I'm still learning from them. Uh, everything I do with them in class is, is collaborative. As you also mentioned a book, and you have a book. Uh, tell us a little bit how you get involved in writing a book. Well, in the crime center at the time, before I was a supervisor, uh, I, I was asked to do multiple things. And one of the things I was asked to do was, can you train? Now, even though the Department of Criminal Justice Services opened up all these fusion centers, um, they put the training aspect on the director's shoulders. So there was no formalized training. There was no handbook. There was no manual, nothing. So I was asked to, to create the in-house training, which I did. So I created a one-month uh, training program for all new hires. Um, and then I actually wrote a training manual that at the end probably was about 120 pages. And it was how to everything, how to work off the, uh, the 9-11 dispatch system, how to do this, how to build a bulletin. How to, it was all training. And what I realized was, you know, it's interesting because all my hires when I became a supervisor, nobody had an intel degree. They had criminal justice degrees and things like that. So on LinkedIn, I saw an advertisement by a publisher looking for people in the field of law enforcement and intelligence uh, to pitch creative ideas. And if the publisher liked the idea, they would ask you to write a book on it. So I did. I reached out to them and we had a conversation and I said, you know, Here's what I do. Here's where I work. Um, there is no training in this field that I can find. Uh, so I wrote a training manual, and I think I can transition that into a college textbook for like a 101 intro- introduction to Intel class. They liked the idea, but because I hadn't written a book before, um, they partnered me um, with a, a ghostwriter, so to speak, uh, an, a published author that worked with them 
regularly. So I am now like field training again. He was my field training officer. He worked with me on the process of formalizing my writing. So I, I wrote, he would help me formalize it, and together um, the first book was published. Uh, and as we're speaking today, we just uh, handed in our manuscript for the second edition of the book. Um, we included a brand new chapter on threat assessment and intelligence analysis on that with targeted violence. Um, and we updated some of the other chapters. So the first book came out in 2016, uh, and the second edition should come out, I would think, in December this year. But that's how the book came about. And I, I currently use it at my college, and I know it's being used at other colleges throughout the country because a lot of uh, professors will reach out to me and say, I'm using your book. Um, can, you, can we have a discussion on this? And I, I really like that because that's collaboration. It really is opening up um, – opportunity to talk to like-minded professors and they can then, you know, go on and transition those conversations to their students. But that's how the book came about. Sweet. For anybody that may want to get a copy, how can they go about doing that? Um, it's through CRC Press, which is one of the largest uh, college public, uh, publishers in the country, CRC Press. Um, and the name of the book is Crime and Intelligence Analysis. Um, a real-time uh, real study. Uh, it's by me, Glenn Grana, and then my co-writer, uh, James Wendell. And, or you can just uh, Google me and Glenn Grana, and the book will pop up there. Uh, it's on my, uh, there's a link to it on my LinkedIn page. Uh, so there's multiple ways you can get it. Probably the easiest way is either Google me and you'll see the book. It's like one of the third or fourth things that pop up. Um, and you can either order it uh, if you're in academia um, you can have your your college or your school purchase it from the publisher, and I know Academia will purchase the book for you. Um, and if you just want to look at it, if you work within the field of crime and intelligence analysis, uh, just take a look at the book. The second edition, like I said, should be coming out with the updated chapter on targeted violence and threat assessment. Um, and I actually had a uh, friend of mine who is a nationally known threat assessment trainer he actually authored Chapter 14 for me, uh, which I was so thankful for. So that entire chapter is based on this person who is a certified nationally known. He's been all over the world teaching threat assessment uh, and targeted violence. Um, he, for nothing, because we're friends, he says, look, I'll author a chapter if you want it. And I said, absolutely, because to whoever reads this book, that chapter is invaluable. So that's in the second edition that should be coming out in December. In addition to reading the book, what other advice would you give to someone entering the field? If you're, um, if you're, say you're a student entering the field, it's your first time out and you're making a decision, do I want to go the traditional route, become an officer or an agent, or do I want to go into intel? Um, I strongly suggest uh, you get a degree in uh, intelligence. You get a degree in intelligence, uh, Homeland Security, Intelligence, take a look at the degree program, though, but make sure it's not in preparedness. Preparedness is different. That's emergency management systems, and in a lot of community colleges, you find their intelligence, Homeland Security degrees are more in preparedness. You want to get a degree that um, Ohio State has one. My college up here, Roberts was in college, although we don't have an online one. Uh, there are a lot of good quality ones. I believe Ohio State has an ex excellent one. Um, and that's an intelligence. Uh, and what you do is if you get that degree, you're going to learn everything 
from a practitioner standpoint, because most of your professors are our intel and crime analysts, and then when you go sit down for your job interview, you'll be able to show them you understand the concepts of GIS and IBM I2 and product development. For someone who's actively in the field right now, um, I would suggest you join an organization like IACA, the International Association of Crime Analysts, um, and you know you go to some conferences and you start networking with people in the field, like you, Oscar, um, or like me, and you just you know you work to you know trade ideas off each other. Um, if you have an agency uh, and you want your agency to learn more, uh, you you can bring in guest speakers or uh, you can introduce them to the IACA and have them take a look at the value because that would only make your job, because uh, I know that you're currently doing it now, it would only make your job easier if your department says, wow, um, what you can bring to the table is so great. We want you to do more in it. Here, go here, go you know, take this course, go to this conference. So those are the two aspects I would say. If you're fresh out of high school or just entering college, get a degree in intelligence. Um, and if you're already in the field, um, start networking with Intel analysts and uh, work on your skill set from that point. Obviously, some people may hear this and they may want to connect with you. What is the best way to do that? Um, you can connect with me through my uh, through email, which is Glenn, G-L-E-N-N, Grana, G-R-A-N-A, one word, at yahoo.com. You can find me on LinkedIn at Glenn Grana and just send me a request or message me. Uh, and those are really the two, the two best ways to get hold of me through my email or find me on LinkedIn. And I would be glad to help anyone, collaborate with anyone, work with anyone, um, anything I can do. I, I really believe that the intelligence aspect and the crime analysis aspect from the civilian side it's such a benefit to law enforcement that if I had, I say this all the time, usually if you're writing a wiretap, if anyone uh, out there is, who's listening has written wiretap investigations the traditional way without utilizing an analyst, you're lucky if you can write two a year because the intelligence portion, the intelligence collection portion of a wiretap was so intense, sometimes two to six months depending on the size of the organization. If I had access to the, the fusion center that I worked at because we also had two analysts assigned to narcotics. If I had access to that, I would have been able to do way uh, more cases simply because um, all the intelligence coming into me is rapidly uh, instead of me doing it the old school way. So just that value alone and um, reaching out and talking to homicide investigators who are using a person in the field and listening to them rave about it, I think that if anyone wants to talk about any of that stuff, um, I I would love to have those conversations. Perfect. Thank you so much for uh, sharing all your info with us. Hopefully we'll hear from some people and send them your way. Thank you, Oscar. I really appreciate it. I think what you're doing with this podcast is a great thing. You're bringing all the like-minded people together. And I mean, that, that that's great. That's what law enforcement needs today. <laughs>